good video, don't you think? I like that. Uh, it's called the Marshmallow Challenge for those kids. And if you haven't figured out yet what we're talking about today, we're talking about temptations. And uh, I'm not talking about the singing group, obviously. Well, I hope that's obvious. But we're going to be back in the book of James today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of James. Now, James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, uh, the son of Joseph and Mary, written in the early 40s. And he wrote to primarily Jews who were Christians, as at this time it was so early in the spread of Christianity that it had not been widely adopted by non-Jews, which we call Gentiles. James encouraged his readers to live consistent Christian lives while persecution was going on for their faith. He says he writes to the twelve tribes in dispersion. Now that's due to the fact that Christians were being persecuted in Jerusalem and were being driven out of the area and settling in farther and farther outreaches. So the gospel starts in Jerusalem to Samaria and to the other ends of the earth, like Jesus said. So if we don't do what, you know, what God wants, sometimes He gives us a little nudge to get there. Um, you know, when I think about James, uh, especially after watching The Chosen that we watched, I, always th- I thought to myself the other day, what would it be like to be a brother to Jesus growing up? You ever thought about that? James, why can't you be more like Jesus? Maybe he heard that. You ever think maybe he almost drowned once? You know, because Jesus can walk on water. No, not funny. You'll get that one when you get home. James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, that there is excitement in your house. There is laughter here. There are people here that just come to worship you. It's not about what we do in the temporal, but it's about those things which have eternal value. Lord, we face temptation every day. And when we fall, we ask that you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and help us to repent, to not do it again. God, we ask for you, in Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God. Amen. Today's life principle. Temptation is evil, must be endured, and doesn't come from God. Jesus is how we overcome it. 
Number one, temptation must be endured. James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Last week, we studied about trials. This week, we're looking at temptation. James continues his thoughts from trials and brings up temptations right underneath it, with this little section tucked in between, talking about the rich man and the poor man. You know, the section, uh, verse 9 Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner is the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, this section is to show that trials and temptations, you know, they come to all of us. From our trials in this life, we may be financially poor, we may be financially rich. The temptation for the poor is to lament in their circumstances, while the temptation for the rich is to trust in their circumstances. Both of these are wrong in the face of a supernatural God. Why are they wrong? Because in the face of eternity, what is temporary circumstances? It is nothing. It means nothing. The poor should glory that he is being risen up, that he is being exalted. His sins have been forgiven. We have access that no one since the fall of mankind has ever had. That is to have fellowship, communion, friendship, and worship directly with God. Chance, turn me down, please. 1 John chapter 1-3 reminds us this, that That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's unheard of. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. The splitting of the curtain in the temple, this was massive significance, and it is still of a massive importance today. You see, this was no Walmart brand curtain. This was no flimsy curtain that someone would hang around a window. The veil that is referred to here was very thick, and very heavy. It would have not been easy to move. There is no way this thing would flutter in a breeze. It stretched from wall to wall as you were going in to the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. This is where God was said to dwell. Nothing unholy could come before him. And as a matter of fact, it said that when the high priest went in to make sacrifice for the sin offering for the people once a year, he would wear bells on his robes and a rope tied around his ankle. If the people didn't hear the bells for a long period of time, they would know that he entered and he was found wanting. He was found unclean and God had struck him dead. 
in the holy of holies. The rope was there to pull his body out of the holy of holies if that were to happen, because who would want to go in if somebody's already been struck dead? So you see, this curtain had to be absolutely heavy, thick, nowhere near being able to just pick it up and tear it. Wouldn't happen. Otherwise, the people would run the risk of God's glory spilling out. And they used to call that the Shekinah glory. And it could kill them because of their sin. Because nothing unholy can stand before a holy God. When Jesus died, the veil was literally torn in two from top to bottom right down the center. This signified that there no longer needed to be a mediator between God and man because of Jesus' sacrifice on that cross and the work that was finished when he gave up his spirit. To die once and for all time to make us not just ceremonial clean, but truly clean for all time. A sacrifice once and for all. Through the sacrifice of one, many are made clean. Romans 5.18 tells us, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, speaking of Adam, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ah, that's good. Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that uh, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This thick veil. And then he says, we may come boldly to the throne of grace. Whoo, that was unheard of. In the Jewish mindset, that was mind-blown. How can we come to a holy God? Only through Jesus Christ. Seeing what was at stake for Paul to be so certain that we could come to God directly through the Son, that's, you ever heard of the term shock and awe? That was shock and awe, folks. Yet as Christians today, we take that privilege for granted. We flippantly talk to God. We forget about His majesty, about His all, and His holiness, and His attributes. Now we sing, I am a friend of God. But that may be true. But folks, where is the shock and the awe of a holy God in our hearts and in our minds? Let's talk about the rich man here. The rich man put his faith in this world's economic system for his temptation. 
It's called being tempted by wealth, to be boastful in his riches, to be prideful or arrogant, or like we used to say growing up, to be snooty, to be a stuck-up snob, as it were. Look at what James says in verse 11. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Just as quickly as riches come, folks, they can go. How many people during the dot-com of the late 90s surge lost everything they had in tech startups? How many people went bankrupt during the housing boom? Many. Many people went from being really wealthy to paupers almost overnight. Many people lost their retirements in these fiascos. Many people had to start all over in their lives again. And many people I know who were not rich, but rich by when we look at the entire world's standards, you know they were making anywhere between twenty five and 50000 a year at the time. And they put what little they could afford in the stock market because that was the thing everybody said to do. And quadrupled their money only to lose it all. You know, during the housing burst, my neighbor bought a new house for in, in his land there uh, because he was a contractor and he was making really good money at the time. And then when it burst, he had no work. He couldn't pay this mortgage that he had taken out and he lost everything. You see, he had a mobile home on that land. It was completely paid off. He owed no one anything except for the taxes, of course, because, you know, the tax man got to get his. But he had it paid off. And then he, then he bought a, a beautiful, beautiful double wide and put it on there. And that bubble, it burst. And it just quickly as he got it, he lost it all. He told me before he moved, he wished he'd never taken that mobile home off of his property because he would at least have a home that was paid off. Riches come, riches go, and I hope that I can be as stoic as Paul when and if that happens. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Temptation for the poor man is to look at his current circumstances and wallow in his negativity. The temptation for the rich man is to look at his current circumstances and wallow in his great gain. The sin here is to look at the temporary and not the eternal for the circumstances that await the Christian. Our eyes need to be on the real prize, and that's eternity with Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Number two, temptations do not come from God. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. James, he set the stage for the general realities of temptation, and that it affects both poor and rich and everyone in between. And now he goes on to enlighten us about where temptations come from. While trials can come from God, and they're usually out of our control, temptations come from another source. While trials are an exterior force, our response to them comes from the inside. How we behave, how we react to things, is our morality being either proven or destroyed. For example, you can lose everything you own. Your temptation may be to blame God, become bitter, react badly, generally lead to sin. But even Adam in the book of Genesis fell to that temptation. He blamed God for his own disobedience. Genesis chapter 3 verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Well, you see God, in other words, well, you see God, you know, you gave me this woman and she did this thing. So really, it's your fault, God, because if you had not made this woman, none of this would have ever happened. We don't know any men that would blame women for anything, do we? (laughs) I don't want to hear that. (laughs) James makes it clear here that our natural bent towards sin which, by the way, is called iniquity in the Bible, is what makes temptation even possible to us. God cannot be tempted because nothing evil can reside in Him. God cannot sin. If anybody ever asks you, is there something God cannot do? Your answer is yes. Anything that's not in standing with His character, with His attributes. Or you can say, yes, God can't sin. Therefore, he does not tempt anyone. We are tempted by our own evil desires. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Desire is conceived in the mind. Jesus taught the same concept when dealing uh, with lust as one of the temptations here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The thought when dwelled upon, folks, whatever the temptation may be, will move you to commit sin, and sin brings forth death. Does this mean literal death? 
It doesn't necessarily mean literal death. Remember, we talked about the sin that can lead to death. But death of relationships, death of life, death of belief, death of those around you in their minds, in their hearts, etc. For example, and this is just an example, a man who loves after a woman, or vice versa today, will play that out in their mind, and it could lead the person to act on it. If adultery happens, eventually the spouse is going to find out about it, and then there will be death of the marriage relationship, and all the hurt that goes along with it. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. I was reading a commentator and he said, Temptation, when acted upon, brings forth a bouncing baby sin. And when you have nurtured and grown that sin, it kills you. I thought, what an interesting analogy. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. That's number three. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. James says in James chapter 1, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. God is not the giver of evil. Let's get that straight. Evil does not come from Him. We just showed that. And this wonderful passage... This wonderful, beautiful passage here has some sound teaching in it. God gives good gifts, and they're perfect. He's called the Father of Lights. What poetry! This goes back to the Old Testament teaching. It's not just good poetry. It would would speak to the Jew. And remember, Christianity at this time was mostly Jews. So they they would have caught this immediately. So we have to go back and we have to find out what it would have meant to them. That's called studying the Bible. That's called good hermeneutics. Yeah, that's a big churchy word for studying the Bible and its culture and in, in its context. He's called the father of lights. This goes back to the Old Testament where the phrase, have you ever heard the phrase when you're reading? The most high God. He is the most high God. It comes up a lot. You see... It was believed that if a nation defeated, conquered, overtook another nation, it was because their gods were more powerful than the conquered nation's gods. Now, you have all these nations around Israel that were polytheistic, meaning they believed in multiple gods. So no matter what happened to Israel, whether they were conquered or not, they believed in one God. If they were conquered, it was because God had deemed it so. God was trying to tell them something, and He was. They would say that their God still, no matter the circumstances, that their God, our God, is above all other gods because they aren't really gods. Every Israelite would know what what is called the Shema, 
which is recited by them. And it's uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The stars in the sky, when they looked up at the, at the stars, remember, we were out here on Friday, and you could look up and see the beautiful stars while we were watching The Chosen. You know, the minute that movie ended, cloud cover came right in. I, bet, I don't know if you even noticed that. Tammy noticed that. She pointed it out to me. How wonderful is our God. But the stars in the sky, they were believed to be gods by the peoples around them. These gods were petty. They were cruel. They had a hidden motive. Or they would try to uh, trick mankind or kick a man while he was down. Okay? One god in the land of Canaan was called Baal. Now, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of Baal. And if you read the Old Testament, it talks a lot about Baal. But he doesn't really talk about what Baal is because everybody knew it was that prolific in that area. You see, Israel was an agrarian society, meaning they had to farm for their food. They had to hunt. They had to do those things. But see, Baal, he was a statue. And it was 30 feet high. And the statue was made of metal that they would heat up until it glowed red hot. And then families would bring their newborn babies and place them in this statue's hands and literally watch them cook to death. This was done so they believed because Baal controlled the weather. So they would sacrifice their children's lives for rain so that in their selfishness they might live. In contrast to this ridiculousness that was all around Israel, Israel stood apart and they said, the Most High God. Israel stood apart from that. And James says here that our God, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, He is three and He is one, is the Most High God. He is the Father of those lights. And unlike these other idols that are worshipped around us, our God is pure, holy, He is not petty, He has no shadow of turning and no variation. He is God. God has revealed Himself. He has revealed His character in the Scriptures, in the Bible. Jesus said in John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Malachi 3, 6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And finally, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. God will not change what He promised He will do. It may not be in our time or the way we thought it would happen, but His promises are yea and amen, and they will happen when He says they will happen. Why? Because He does not lie. And there is none greater than He is. 
All good things come from God. Good and perfect things. And the most good thing He ever did was die for our sins. That is the best thing that He has ever given. God the Son, Jesus, died for my sin and for your sin. That is the best gift that comes from the Father. He chose us, and because of this, nothing can take us out of His hand. Not anything. Not anything. Romans 8, 38-39 For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're dealing with temptation, know that it does not come from God. Know that it comes from our own evil desires that are still there from the sinful man. And you can read about that in Galatians chapter 5. And that temptation must be endured. And that Jesus is how we overcome. That relationship is of utmost importance. How about you today? As the ladies come and sing, how about you today? Oh, we've got salvation down, fellow Baptists. We know all about our sin. We know all about that we need Jesus to save us and cleanse us and make us new so that we can be with Him in eternity. But how close is your relationship with Him now? You see, if you've not had the experience of that salvation moment, you don't even have an inkling of what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. You really don't. He told Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he can't even see the kingdom of heaven. That's our starting point. That's not where we end. We're supposed to go on. Let me ask a question that may mess you up a little bit. How long has it been since you have known the presence of God through His Word, through prayer, through singing, through worship. You know what the problem is? At least it is for me. I'll go ahead and I'll confess it in front of all of you. The problem is my sin. The problem is I in my flesh do not want to confess that I made a mistake. That I sinned. And that's what it comes down to. You want to experience God? More prayer. What happens when you pray? You've got to repent. You've got to confess your sins. To a holy God. And for me, I don't want to do that in my flesh. Because I don't want to hurt the heart of God. But I've already hurt the heart of God when it happened. That's why it's important to confess your sins when they happen. Maybe you need a special prayer today. Maybe you need to finally come to know Jesus as your your personal Savior. Not just somebody that we religiously attend church with. Not just somebody that we religiously go on Sundays, but an actual relationship with the Most High God. Maybe that's you today. If it is, I can introduce you to Him. 
but I can't save you. Jesus saves you. We don't need anybody else to be a mediator between us and God because of the man Christ Jesus and his sacrifice. Because Jesus, the second in the Trinity, the Most High God himself, took on flesh and dwelt among us. If that's you today, I can introduce you to him. It's not about what you say, no magic words, but about the intent of your heart. Maybe you need to just get before God and say, hey, God, I got a lot of sinning I've been doing. I, I haven't repented. Forgive me. I want a relationship again. Maybe that's you. Or, Lord, my relationship is waning. It's starting to wax cold. I'd like some more heat, please. The campfire is going out, and I'm cold in the dark. Maybe that's you. Whatever your need is, as a church, we can uphold you and uplift you, and I'd be glad to pray for you. As we stand and sing the invitation hymn, Miss Joe.